This is Reverend Kirk Lawton, minister at Ocean Lakes Family Campground, and this is our podcast. Our prayer is that this message may enrich your life as you find God especially meaningful to you. Thank you for worshiping with us. We continue this morning our consideration of the 23rd Psalm, which has been called the philosophy of life set to music, a river from whose refreshing streams tired and weary pilgrims have quenched their thirst, a hiding place under whose protective ledge those who journey between the cradle and the grave have found reliable refuge in the hour of storm and stress. So many who look at the 23rd Psalm see it only for what it says, and they fail to look at the cradle in which this beautiful psalm is placed by God, who is the author of all of our scripture. Psalm 22 that precedes it and Psalm 24 that follows it form a lovely trio along with Psalm 23. Let's look at this psalm in its setting. Psalm 22 breathes the atmosphere of the cross. The opening statement in Psalm 22, Jesus is quoted saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And later in Psalm 22, we read words which surely could have been a forecast of what would happen to Jesus on the cross. Verse 16, They pierced my hands and my feet. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. That's the 18th verse. This entire 22nd Psalm is one describing agony. And our Lord Jesus knew what agony was on the cross. Now skip to Psalm 24. This Psalm on the other hand is gloriously triumphant. The Psalm begins, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This Psalm speaks of the kingship of Christ. Listen to the tone of the closing section. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And so the 23rd Psalm is between 22 and 24. Psalm 22 is the Psalm of the Savior. Psalm 23 is the Psalm of the Shepherd. And Psalm 24 is the Psalm of the Sovereign. To put it another way, Psalm 22 is the Psalm of the Cross. Psalm 23 is the psalm of the crook, that is the shepherd's crook. Psalm 24 is the psalm of the crown. Another way of saying it, Psalm 22 is Mount Calvary. Psalm 24 is Mount Zion. And in between Mount Calvary and Mount Zion, you have the valley of the shadow of death. This morning we see again In this beautiful 23rd Psalm, how wonderfully God meets our needs, whatever they may be. This morning I want to mention four areas of need that our Lord meets. 
First, the sensual. And by this I mean those necessities of life in the realm of the material. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. David, as a shepherd, knew that his sheep had physical needs. The Lord, our good shepherd, also knows that we have physical needs, and he meets these abundantly. Only those who are acquainted with sheep and their habits can understand the significance of what's called a cast sheep, or a sheep that is cast down. This is an old shepherd's term for a sheep that has turned over on its back and cannot get up by itself again. A cast sheep is a pathetic sight. Lying on its back with its feet up in the air, it fights frantically and struggles to get up, but without success. And if the shepherd does not arrive on the scene within time, the sheep will surely die. Here's how it happens. A heavy, fat, long-fleeced sheep may lie down comfortably in some little hollow or depression in the ground. It may roll on its side slightly to stretch out or to relax. And suddenly the center of gravity in the sheep's body may shift so that it turns over on its back far enough so that the feet no longer touch the ground. The sheep may feel a sense of panic and start to paw frantically. And this often just makes things worse. It rolls over even further. Now it is impossible for this sheep to regain its footing. As it lies there struggling, gases begin to build up in its stomach. And as these gases expand, they tend to retard, to cut off blood circulation to the legs and feet. And if the weather is very hot, a cast sheep can die in just a few hours. Let me share with you the account given by modern-day shepherd Philip Keller of what happens when a sheep is cast. These are his words. I would spend hours searching for a single sheep that was missing. More often than not, I would see it at a distance, down on its back, lying helpless. At once, I would start to run toward it, hurrying as fast as I could, for every minute was critical. Within me, there was a mingled sense of fear and joy, fear that it might be too late, joy that I had found the sheep at all. And as soon as I reached the cast sheep, my very first impulse was to pick it up. But rather, tenderly, I would roll the sheep over on its side. This would relieve the pressure of gases in the stomach. If she had been down for long, I would have to lift her onto her feet. And then straddling the sheep with my legs, I would hold her up erect, rubbing her limbs to restore circulation to her legs. This often took quite a little time. When the sheep started to, to walk again, she often just stumbled, staggered, and collapsed in a heap once again. All the time I worked on the sheep, I would talk to it very gently. When are you going to learn to stand on your own feet? Or, I'm so glad I found you this time, you rascal. And so the conversation would go, always couched in language that combined tenderness and rebuke, compassion and correction, 
And little by little, the sheep would regain its equilibrium. It would start to walk steadily and surely. And by and by, it would dash away to rejoin the other in the flock, set free from its fears and frustrations, given another chance to live a little longer. Don't we all have those times in our lives when we feel like a cast sheep? In Psalm 42, verse 11, the psalmist cries out, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? In times like these, how comforted it is to know that we have a good shepherd who's promised to give us the blessing we need. Just then, he restoreth my soul. But there are other types of needs that we have in addition to the sensual. These are needs in times of sorrow. David is realistic. He does not say that when one becomes a member of God's flock, then he escapes all sorrow and stress. You know, God did not save Daniel out of the lion's den. He saved him in the lion's den. God did not save the Hebrew children out of the fiery furnace. He saved them in the fiery furnace. God did not save the Apostle Paul from tribulation, distress, persecution, peril, nakedness, and sword. Rather, Paul said that in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we read, In everything, give thanks. Have you ever noticed that after the first three verses in the 23rd Psalm, David changes the pronoun he uses to refer to the Lord? When the sun is shining, the waters are still, the grass is green, the paths of righteousness are beckoning, David uses the pronoun he. But when trouble comes, when the pockets are empty, when a new-made grave is wet with tears from a broken heart, the pronoun changes to thou. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. In the hour of trial, we come closer to God. Many people have never prayed, really prayed, until some illness or some pain may lay them low, or until a child lies critically ill, or until times when all of life seems to tumble in. God, our good shepherd, is right there in the valley with his sheep. Before, David was talking about God, but now he's talking to him. Aren't you glad that in the hour of sorrow, you are not experiencing God by remote control? He is near. Well, our needs don't end with the sensual or the sorrow needs. We also have social needs. We need fellowship with one another. But there come times when fellowship is broken. And so we need one to whom we can go who will understand us. God does not allow our loneliness to overwhelm us. What does he do? He invites us over for dinner. In David's time, it was a big thing to be invited to someone's home for dinner. Well, that's not a bad idea today either, is it? As a minister, I have been into many homes for meals. I have been in homes of the rich and the poor. I have been in places where you pick up the chicken and eat it with your fingers. I have been in other homes where the food was so fancy, so beautifully prepared, 
till you didn't know if it was chicken or frog legs you were eating. <laughs> I have sat at tables which represented many hours of loving preparation by the lady of the house. But oh, how wonderful it must be when God himself puts on the apron. He becomes the cook. The, ver the verse in the 23rd Psalm says, Thou preparest a table before me. God does not send Gabriel or Michael or one of his angels. He cooks the biscuits. He makes the gravy. God does it. In the next phrase, in the, fifth, in the fifth verse of this psalm, we see even further how God meets our social needs when we become his special guests. In olden days, every home had an expensive container of perfumed oil right by the door. It was used only on special occasions when distinctive company came for a visit. For example, if a wonderful friend came to visit you from far away, or if a loved one you hadn't seen in a long time came, you would greet that person at the door, and you would dip your two hands in that precious ointment, then anoint the head of that very special person as they entered your house. To that person it would be a marvelous gesture of welcome. You would be saying to that person, in effect, you are not the average run-of-the-mill person to me. You are somebody special, and we are delighted to have you here. Now, you would never use this oil on a next-door neighbor. She may come over every day anyhow to borrow a cup of sugar or to fuss about the children or to share the latest bit of gossip about the neighbors. In fact, it might be a man who does that even. In fact, you might be glad to use the oil on this person uh, when the person went out of your house to signify you were glad they were going. But oh, how different is the way God receives you and me, sinners though we are. Here we are, a bunch of nobodies, each with our own fears about ourselves, our own special feelings of inferiority, and yet, wonder of wonders, when we walk in to sit at the table God has prepared for us, He anoints our head with oil. Look at the next phrase. My cup runneth over. Today when people come to Myrtle Beach, there are plenty of motels and restaurants where they can find lodging and food. Not so during David's time. Back then, if a person happened to be caught between his point of origin and his destination, and it was mealtime, he could stop at any house on the way, introduce himself, and ask to stay for dinner. So if somebody came to your house, you would gladly feed him because you knew that the time may come when you would perhaps need a similar favor of someone when you were journeying one day. But you would be under no obligation to keep this traveler or to entertain him once the meal was over. Of course, if you wanted to, that was another matter. Now, suppose this person who comes your way did happen to be quite an interesting personality. If you wanted to, you could invite him to remain after the meal. But it was not customary for you to tell him that in so many words. You would convey that invitation by filling up his cup to overflowing. Your guest would then look up at you, smile, and thank you for your invitation. Now, if you were the traveler, and as you sat there, the host would bring your cup, and put it beside your plate, and look at you and see that it's only half full, <laughs> what that would mean is, buddy, 
As soon as you get your dessert, you can hit the road. And David is saying here, God wants me to stay. He not only invites me for a meal, prepares it himself, anoints my head with oil, but to cap it all off, he delights in my presence so much, he wants me to stick around. Oh, that is wonderful. This is exactly how God feels about you and me. He loves your company. He knows we're all are wayward sheep so often, but he still loves us. We are accepted by him. God knows all about us, and he loves us anyhow. There's one last area of our need that God supplies, and this is the spiritual. David expresses it this way. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You and I have two main areas of problems, time and eternity, or here and hereafter. And God has made full provision for both. In time, that is here on earth, God furnishes goodness and mercy. And then in eternity, the hereafter, God will supply us with a place in His house forever. Look with me very briefly at these two areas. First, time. In David's day, every shepherd usually had two dogs. These were well-trained sheep dogs, and they had a special function. They would follow the flock from the rear and see that none of the sheep would wander off from the rest. These dogs would attack wild animals by barking or maybe call attention to the shepherd who was up front leading the sheep. And so the psalm, psalmist says in these closing verses here that every shepherd needs these two dogs. The good shepherd goes ahead leading, and at the rear of the flock are his two protective dogs. I like to think of them as being named one goodness and the other one named mercy. These follow the sheep all the way. Now, is that just beautiful rhetoric? Well, ask David if that's true for him. I can almost hear David reply, Goodness? Oh, yes, the Lord has been good. I was a meaningless shepherd on the slope of a hill. God came and put a scepter in my hand, put a crown on my head, and he gave me far more than I could ever have deserved. And we say, okay, David, so much for goodness. What about mercy? And we can almost see David blush as he's reluctant to bring this subject up. But he says, oh, you know my story. I did sin terribly against God, against Uriah, against Bathsheba, but God forgave my sin. And David says, if you want to know about that, read the 51st Psalm that I wrote. Oh, yes, I know the meaning of God's mercy. And folks, the same is true of us today. Every one of us hearing my voice right now could write a volume or maybe two volumes on the goodness of God and then the other one on the mercy of God. These two sheepdogs, so to speak, have blessed our lives and we know it. That's for now, for time. But what about the second of these, eternity? We will live in God's house forever. When time begins to join hands with eternity, when life fades, what then? 
in the house of the Lord forever. Do you love to think about that home over there? Oh, how wonderful it is to know that God has thought of everything, both for time and for eternity. We should not have to beg people to accept this Christ. Our strength is no match for the problems of our time. But our Good Shepherd offers just what we need, just when we need Him most. Have you received Jesus as your Good Shepherd? If you have not, then there's no better time than right now, today, to say, Lord Jesus, I know that you love me. I know you died on the cross to save me from my sin, and I want to be your child. Whatever your age may be, he stands ready to receive and to bless, to forgive us our sins, and to give us a new life for right now, and also a home in heaven when this life is over. Oh God, help us, we pray, to be open, to be receptive to your loving voice to us, whatever our situation may be today. This we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.